Shalom, welcome to Tanakh Study. This is Alex Israel from Alon Shvut. Delighted to be with you and we are going to be studying chapter 23, the story of the purchase of the uh, Kever Machpelah. Let's begin. Last time we did an introduction about the ages of Rivka and Yitzchak in this parsha, and uh, today we're going to read through the chapter from the beginning. Sarah was one hundred and twenty-seven years. Uh, those were her years. And Sarah died in Kirat Arba, that is Hebron, we explained those phrases in our last year. In the land of Canaan, and Avraham came, probably came from the pastures in which he was shepherding his sheep, to eulogize Sarah and to cry for her. Vayakam Avraham Avraham arose from the face of his dead, and he engaged with the Bnei Chet, the tribe of the Chitim, in the following way. And he says, I am a stranger and a resident amongst you. And Achuza is a holding. We say that even in English to do with property, real estate. And he says, give me a, the holding onto a Kever, and I will bury my dead before me. The Bnei Chait, this tribe of Chait, asked answer Avraham in the following way: Adoni, listen, our master, Nasi Elohim you are a prince of God in our midst. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial caves or our graves. Nobody will deny their uh, burial place from you. I have to stress that in those times it seems like the way that people used to bury their dead was in caves. They used to let the uh, put the lay the body out in a cave on a particular platform, and the body used to decompose. And a, a year later, they used to take the bones, gather them together. The Gemara talks about a process called Likut Atzamot, gathering the bones. That day was a day of mourning, a day of sitting Shiva. And once again, a year later, after the burial, and uh, then they would gather the bones and put them into a a jar, an earthenware jar, and uh, leave that platform open for the next person who would die to be laid out there. And many of these burial caves would then be filled with lots of jars of all of their ancestors. In fact, some people understand that when they say I am gathered to my forefathers, that was because you were literally gathered into the cave um, where so many of your ancestors were buried. So we're talking about the Bnei Chet who each have burial places and they say to Avraham, you can bury in even the nicest burial caves. No one will deny their burial place from you. Because you are an Asi Elohim, Atabatochenu. You are a prince of God amongst us. It would be an honor for us to bury you in our burial caves. Vayakam Avraham, this wonderful gesture, generous gesture of the local tribe, 
Avraham arises, he bows down to the floor to the Bnei Chet, but he continues to speak in sentence, if you have the desire to let me bury my dead before me, then please listen and uh, let me meet Ephron, the son of Tzohar, please let him give me the double cave, or maybe the name was Machpelah, but the word is Kaful, so maybe it was a double cave, a cave within a cave, which is on the edge of his field, um, he, I want to pay the full price amongst you as a burial holding. Uh, what is this idea of a cave at the edge of a field? It's likely that the fields were in the valley in this part of the world in Eretz Yehuda. You have hills and valleys like in every other place, but um, that the farming lands are in the valleys. That's what you see all around. The hills are used for vineyards and uh, frequently the, 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 the villages are on the hills, but the valleys where the rich earth is, and frequently you'll have halfway down the hill a ma'ayan, a spring which will help you irrigate the, the, the fields, and the fields are frequently in the valley. So if you can imagine narrow valleys with hills, then the likelihood is that the, at the edge of, of the field that goes into the hillside, and in the hillside there is a cave. So that's what we're talking about here. Um, what happens? Ephron Yoshev Betoch Bnei Chait, he is part of the Bnei Chait. Vayan Ephron Achitiat Avraham, Bozne Bnei Chait Leimor, Lechol Be'eshariro Leimor. Ephron replies to Avraham in the presence of all of the Bnei Chait, where all of the Be'eshariro, those who come in through the gate. I don't know whether this was means that this was like the elders of the city who are the people who sit at the gates, or maybe it was even a more public uh, tribal meeting. And he says, uh, you, My master, you didn't hear me properly. I've given you the field. In public, I'm giving you the field. I'm giving it over to you. Bury your dead. It sounds like he's giving Avraham the field for free. Avraham bowed down before the people of the land. He speaks to Evron in the presence of the people of the land, saying, If you'll only hear me out, I'm giving you money for this field. Please accept this. Shama, and I want to bury my dead there. Avraham, Ephron says to Avram and says, I, I, I listen to your terms. What is a field of 400 pieces of silver between me and you? The price is 400 shekel. Avram and Ephron. Avram listened to Ephron. He weighed out the money. Which was spoken in public. Four hundred pieces of silver at the merchant's rate. And 
And now, if you want, before we spoke about how Avram Vayakam Avraham Yalpanimito, he got up and uh, from the face of his dead. Before we saw Vayakam Avraham Vishtahu Aretz, Avram got up and bowed down to the people. But now it is not Avram who gets up, but Vayakam, the actual field, so to speak, arises. And uh, the field of Ephron, which is in Machpelah, by Mamre, the field and the, the, the cave which was in it, and all of even all the trees which were in it, in all of his borders, arose la Avraham la Mikneh. It was elevated to Avraham as a acquisition la Ineibne in the vision of all of the tribe of Chait Bechol Ba'ishari Ro in public in a public hearing and only once the legal work had been done, Kavar Avraham et Ishto. Avram buried Sarah, his wife, El Ma'arat Machpelah, to the cave in the field of Machpelah, Al Pnei Mamre, which was in Mamre, Hi Chevron, in Chevron, Be'eretz Canaan, Bayakam Sadeha, Vamarash Shebo, Avraham, and the field and the cave within it was given over as an acquisition to Avraham, Lachuzak Kaver, to a burial holding, Me'et Pnei Chet. What a story! So long! Um, the, the, all of the dealings, sort of the Levantine bargaining, where, oh, take it for free. What is the need for this uh, bargaining process? And I say this in particular because later on in Parshat Ve'ishlach, we see that Yaakov buys a field, and it says, He built, he bought the portion of the field where his tent had been um, pitched from the hand of Bnei Chamor for a hundred kesita. In one verse, we're told of the purchase of a, of a field there. Here is not one verse, but it's 18 verses. Why do we need this lengthy um, description? I, I will say one thing, which uh, I find, I just last week, I did a tour, I led a tour in Mishkanot Sha'ananim, uh, the area of Yemin Moshe, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, which was the first um, move of Jews in the late 19th century, in 1860, to move outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And the, the land there was bought by the famous Moses Montefiore, Sir Moses Montefiore. And in the description of how he bought the land, uh, we're told that he approached, he approached the Arab governor of Jerusalem, whose name was Ahmad Agadizdar, and he owned a plot outside the walls facing uh, Hartzion. And according to the legend, legend, as Dizdar told Sir Moses Montefiore, and, and I quote, You are my friend, my brother, the apple of my eye. Take possession of it at once. This land I hold as an heirloom from my ancestors. Ancestors, I wouldn't sell it to anyone for thousands of pounds, but to you I give it for free, without any money. It's yours to take possession of it. I, myself, my wife and my children, we are all yours. And the report goes that the bargaining then began and lasted all day, and when eventually they came to the conclusion, the uh, conclusion was, tell Sir Moses to give me a souvenir of £1,000 sterling and we will go at once to the Qadi. And the document was, was uh, with the purchase was signed sorry, on August the 12th, 1855. Um, this reminds us so much of, of this particular story that we're reading where 
Ephron seems to give him the land for free, but then charges him an exorbitant amount of 400 pieces of silver. And um, maybe this story represents a sort of, as I say, a Middle Eastern temperament of, of, of purchase, and it sort of authenticates the story in some way. But as we all know, the Torah is economical with words, especially in its narrative sections, and we we do wonder what what is going on in this story and what the toing and froing teaches us. And I'd like to reflect on that. We'll start off with our Mufarshim who who deal with this. Um, we'll start off with the Ibn Ezra. Whereas the Ibn Ezra says, what what is the whole point of this story? The um, purpose of this story is to tell us the great high level of Eretz Yisrael above all other lands, whether for life, for, for the living or the dead. In other words, uh, maybe he's pointing out here that the word Eretz Kanaan is used in Pasuk Bet, that Sarah dies and later on at the end of the story also that he buries her that there's something special about burying in Eretz Kena'an. Number two, he says, And also, it's to tell us that God started fulfilling his promises to Avraham that the land would be an inheritance to him, and of course he buys his first piece of real estate. And that's the opinion of the Ibn Ezra, that this shows you how special the land is, um, for the living and for the dead, that even we, we all know a tradition of, of people, even if they couldn't live their lives in Israel, being buried in Israel, and likewise that Avram is now buying the land, his first purchase. The Ramban takes issue with Ibn, Ibn Ezra. He says, I don't understand the Ibn Ezra's reading where he says it is to show the level of Eretz Yisrael for the living and dead, because he says, obviously, Avram's in the middle of Eretz Yisrael, why would he take her to bury her in another land? That doesn't make sense. Number two, he says, this doesn't show anything about Avram's inheritance of the land, because Avram is promised the entire land of Canaan, and here, and, and that is only fulfilled through his descendants many years hence. This doesn't show that Avram inherits the land, in fact, According to the Gemara in Ketubot, this is just another test for Avraham, that poor Avraham, who's been promised the whole land, has to pay top dollar in order to acquire the land. So what indeed does it teach us? The Ramban suggests that it teaches us something else. And he says, He had already become famous, he had become a religious figure. He came as a lagor, and we're going to pay attention to this word in a minute. He he comes only to sojourn in the land. And individuals, and in fact the collective, called him our master, and saw him as an asi Elohim, as a prince of God. In other words, he had become, in the words of the Ramban, a sar v'gadol, uh, fulfilling the promise I will make your name great and um, then he also says that what was very special here was about this story is to teach us just how much we have to honor the place of the burial of our ancestors um, 
in the land of Canaan, that we should know where our ancestors are buried. In fact, later on in Breshit, the Ramban talks about his visit to Hebron and how when he made Aliyah uh, late in life, he actually went to visit Hebron and, and, and he talks about this special thing. The last thing the Ramban says is that indeed this was one of the tests of Abraham. Uh, because Avraham had been promised the land, but poor Avraham had to buy the land. I don't know what you think. Do you do you agree with the Ramban? Yes, it's true. He was an honourable man. It's true. This tells us where our ancestors buried, and there is an element of test here. But this still doesn't seem to explain to me what's going on in the narrative. And in order to explain the ebb and flow of the narrative, I would like to begin with a passage by Rav Soloveitchik, and here I'm reading from a book called Reflections of the Rav, uh, which is a transcript of some of the Rav Soloveitchik's uh, Parsha Shiorim, his public speeches. And I'll, I'll read a segment and then we will, uh, we will reflect on this segment. This is what he says. The first patriarch, Avraham, introduced himself to the inhabitants of Canaan with the following words, I am a stranger and a resident among you. Are not these two terms mutually exclusive? One is either a stranger, an alien, or one is a resident, a citizen. How could Avram claim both identities for himself? Avraham's definition of his dual status, we believe, describes with profound accuracy the historical position of the Jew who resides in a predominantly non-Jewish society. He was a resident, like other inhabitants of Canaan, sharing with them a concern for the welfare of society, digging wells and contributing to the progress of the country and loyalty to its government and institutions. Here, Avraham was clearly a fellow citizen, a patriot among compatriots, joining others in advancing the common welfare. However, there was another aspect, the spiritual, in which Avram regarded himself as a stranger. His identification and solidarity with his fellow citizens in the secular realm did not imply his readiness to relinquish any aspects of his religious uniqueness. His was a different faith, and he was governed by perceptions, truths and observances which set him apart from the larger faith community. In this regard, Avraham and his descendants would always remain strangers. Like other people, the Jew has more than one identity. He's part of the larger family of mankind, but he also has a Jewish identity which separates him from others. Each identity imposes upon him particular responsibilities. As a citizen of a pluralistic society, the Jew assumes the social and political obligations to contribute to the general welfare and to combat, combat such da common dangers as famine, corruption, disease and foreign enemies. Where the freedom, dignity and security of human life are at stake, all people, irrespective of ethnic diversity, are expected to join as brothers in shouldering their responsibilities. These are concerns which transcend all boundaries of difference. The Jew, however, has another identity which he does not share with the rest of mankind, the covenant with God, which was established at Mount Sinai over 3,000 years ago. All of Jewish history only makes sense in terms of the validity of this covenant, which entrusted to the Jewish people of all generations with a particular national destiny and a distinctive religious heritage. 
This identity involves responsibilities in a way of life which are uniquely Jewish and which inevitably set the Jew apart from non-Jews. It is particularistic rather than universalistic. End of quote. Rav Soloveitchik is relating to these two words, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I am a stranger and a resident. I reside amongst you, but I am a stranger. And I would like to say that I think this goes to the heart of what is going on here. You know, until this point, Abram has gone from place to place, from Shechem to Beit El to Egypt, back to Beit El, to Hebron, to Gerar, to Beersheba, and now he's back in Hebron. He's always wandering. You know, his son Yitzchak at this point in time lives in the Negev, and Avram and Sarah live in Hebron. And I imagine that the inhabitants of Hebron saw Avram as a very respectful um, religious man. He was an Asi Elohim. Indeed, they respected him as a, as a maybe a saintly and a, a prophet. And yet they asked themselves, what is going to be with Avram and Sarai when they die? Of course, Avram and Sarah are going to move on. But unlike us, the people of Bnei Chait, they don't have a chamula, they don't have a tribe, they don't have children and grandchildren amongst them farming the land. They're going to die, and nothing is going to be left of them. And therefore I think when Avram comes and says, Give me a burial plot, and I will bury my dead from before me, they say, Of course, Bury your dead in the choicest grave. It would be an honour for us to have Abraham and Sarah buried in any of our family plots. You are the most honoured member. You are a, a, a honoured citizen, an honorary citizen of Hebron. Please, it would be an honour for us, an accolade, to have a prophet of your, of your stature and of your pedigree buried in our places. But Abraham, of course, why would you ever want to spend money on a burial site? Who's going to visit it? Who is going to honour this place? You'll buy a burial plot. It would be absurd for you to have a field in a burial cave. Obviously, who will work the field and who will look after the burial cave? Bury in all of our caves. Avram insists that he bury his dead, as he says, the Echuzat Kever, a place which will be a place to grip on, Avraham has decided he wants to bury his dead before him, on his own terms, in his own place. Avraham wants not to be a ger anymore, not to be a wanderer, but he is setting down the first, uh, the first pieces of being a toshav, a resident. Now, of course, the, the people of, of, of Hebron can't understand this. Avraham's an elderly man, his wife has already died. Who's going to come after him? Who's going to remember this site? And therefore, when he approaches Ephron, the people assume that, yes, he wants to use Ephron's cave. He's taken a liking to it. It's got a nice view. And Ephron says to him, of course you can have my cave. Verse 11. I've given you the field. I've given you the cave. Bury your dead. What's the problem? Fine. Avram bows down, but he says, I want to bury my dead under my terms. And this is the misunderstanding 
between, and this is why we have to hear all of the dialogue, the people of Hebron perceive Avram as a passing individual, as a passing phenomenon. And Avram sees himself as a fixture. They see him as a ger. He sees himself as a toshav. Avram has made a decision for the first time in his life that he's going to establish permanent roots in a place. And this is fascinating that this particularly happens after the death of his wife. If I can share a personal memory, I, I remember my, my grandfather. My grandfather lived his whole life in, in England. And uh, when his wife passed away, by that time, eight out of his nine grandchildren were living in Israel. And when my grandmother died, my grandfather decided to bury her in Israel. And we said, Grandpa, why are you doing that? You've paid your burial fees for uh, 90 years in England. Uh, bury her with maybe with her parents in, in, in London. Why are you bringing her to be buried in Eretz Israel? And he said, all my grandchildren and my grandchildren great-grandchildren are going to be in Israel. Who's going to visit my kever? He saw the burial place as a place of the future, not the ending of a life, but a place of the future. And of course, kever machpelah has become a place which was associated by future generations. It's in the, right at the end of Sefer Breshit, in, almost in the last chapter, that Yaakov, when they're still in Egypt, indicates to his children that their place is not in Egypt. Al natik bereni b'mitzrayim, don't bury me in in in, in Egypt. V'shachavtiim avotai v'nasatani b'mitzrayim u'kvaratani b'kvoratam, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burial places that I sleep with my forefathers. And later on, makes his children take an oath that they will bury him. He gives them all the coordinates. He shows them the legal documents. Shama kavruet Abraham says Yaakov. There Abraham is buried in Sarah. That's where Yitzchak and Rivka are buried. That's where I buried Leah, and I want to be buried there too. This burial place becomes a magnet for the future of Jewish history. The uh, Israelites, the, the, the Bnei Yaakov, have to, even though they're settled and happy in Egypt, have to carry their dead father back home and understand that Egypt is not the place in which they are going to live out Jewish history. In other words, Avraham understands that this achuza, this uh, holding, actually becomes a place of holding for the rest of Jewish history. So I think everything that was said by the Ibn Ezra and Ramban is true, but yet it doesn't explain the toing and froing of the negotiations. The negotiations, I think, reflect a mismatch of understandings. The people of Hebron see Avraham as a passing fad. Avraham, in these, in this twilight of his life, as he experiences his own mortality, as his dead wife lies before him, he says, if I don't make a statement now about the fact that we really belong in Eretz Israel, that I am not a ger anymore, I'm not a wanderer, but I am Toshav, I'm a fixture here, then who knows what the future will bring. And this forces him to buy this plot of land. You know, Rashi thinks that Ephron overcharged Avraham, uh, saying that he was, uh, you know, 
Emor Harbev Asemaat, but I don't think he overcharged him like the Ramban. This was probably the market value of a field and a cave uh, in terms of what it would produce and all of that. As I said, the people of Hebron say, it's absurd for you, Avraham, to pay so much money for this. After you're dead, we're going to take it back. But Avram understands that this is a place which will be a holding for the future, and he is, wants to pay the full amount of money for this land. And indeed, later on, we find Yaakov living in Hebron, um, living in Vaishlachehu Me'emek Hebron. Yaakov lives in Hebron, and the family continue to live there. And of course, it becomes a place in which the family will remain. So I hope now we have a better understanding of what these negotiations are all about. And of course, this goes very, very deep into an understanding of what is happening to Avram at this point in his life. This is a theme that we're going to see running through Pasha Chayistara, and we're going to talk about, please God, next time when we start reading chapter 24, Perek Chafdalad. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.